Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We begin a mini-series on the topic of exile. What are we supposed to do as believers of God while we live in exile? This actually is pretty applicable to today's society. You're listening to Wisdom for Exile by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah verse 29, I'll read verses 4 through 14. Before I do that, uh, let me just say that uh, a lot of what I'm going to be saying today is indebted uh, to Tim Keller, who has studied, this is one of his favorite passages, so a lot of the the good stuff that I'm going to say is probably Tim Keller, the the less good is probably my stuff. Um, So I'm indebted to him, I want to get that out front. And I also want to say, um, I'm going to, uh, about a third of my sermon will come before the reading. I really want to set it up before I get to the actual reading today. And that's because this is the beginning. This morning marks the beginning of a, a mini-series of sermons. This week and the three weeks following, so four weeks altogether, we will be looking at Old Testament texts that come out of the context of the exile. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that there's lots and lots of writings in the Old Testament that have an exile context. So, for example, Isaiah, a lot of his prophecies are clearly addressed to the people while they're in exile. Daniel is an exile book. Esther is an exile book. Lamentations, that's the lament of the people while they are in exile. Some of the Psalms are clearly written while the people are in exile. And today, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a great exile book because it sort of traces everything that was happening in Jerusalem up to the exile itself. At the beginning of Jeremiah, the prophet is warning the people that the exile is coming. And in the very last chapter of the book of Jeremiah, the Babylonians come in, they burn the city to the ground, and they take every single person off to Babylon. Why am I going to be looking, why are we going to be looking at exile texts? Well, Because, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that people today are talking about how the church and our context as church members today is more and more like exile. We've lost social power, we've lost cultural power, we're in a minority position, and increasingly the outside culture does not recognize or accept the things that have been central to us for a long, long time. And so that's raised the question, and many people are asking that question, how do we live when we're not the dominant culture? How do we live when we're in a minority position? How do we live as exiles? Jeremiah 29 is a great passage to answer that question because Jeremiah effectively says to the exiles in Babylon, here's what God says, here's how you're supposed to live in exile. Now, before I read it, Let me give you a full picture of the exile context. You probably all know that eventually the exile into Babylon was all the people of Jerusalem and the whole city was knocked to the ground. You probably all know that. What you maybe don't know is that wasn't how it first happened. The exile into Babylon took place in stages. And so when Babylon first conquered Jerusalem, they did not burn the city down. They took some of the temple implements And they took only some of the people off to Babylon. And the people they took were the brightest and the best. They took what they thought were all the smart people. So the 
artisans, the skilled craftsmen, the intellectuals who they thought they had who they thought had value. They took all those people off to Babylon and then left all the other people who they didn't think had value behind, which included Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a preacher and apparently that is not considered skilled labor. <laughs> so that's the context. Only some of the people, the highly skilled people, are in Babylon. Most of the people are still back in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and the letter that I'm going to read in chapter 29 is a letter from Jerusalem to the people who are in exile, to the artisans. And he's saying to them, here's how you people should live in Babylon. He needs to say this because it's become a controversial subject. There is debate about how the people should live in exile. And there's a prophet named Hananiah, and you can read about him in chapter 28, the chapter before, who's been going around and he's been saying, don't cooperate with those Babylonians. They're idolaters, they're evil, they will corrupt you. Set yourself apart from them, because in two years, brothers and sisters, in two years, the Lord will deliver a mighty judgment upon the people of Babylon, and Babylon will be destroyed, and all you exiles will come home. This is the word of the Lord. Do not associate with them. That's what Hananiah was preaching. There were a lot of the prophets preaching that, and it was a popular sermon. People liked that preaching, because it was strong. It was victorious. It wasn't mamby-pamby drew bright lines between good and evil. So people were flocking to that preaching. The only problem was it was not the word of the Lord. Here is the word of the Lord as it came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry. Have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Now he's talking about Hananiah. Do not let them deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then you will come and call on me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord.
So how are we supposed to relate to the culture around us? How do exiles relate when they're in a culture that's not the same as theirs? Jeremiah 29 gives a clear answer to that question for the Babylonian exiles. And what I want you to see is that the answer that Jeremiah gives is firmly placed in between two extremes. Up to now, there have been two other cultural opportunities, possibilities for the people of Israel, and they're on two sides of the spectrum. One of those opportunities is the one suggested to them by Babylon itself. So when those exiles, those, those, those intellectual, those, those craftsmen ended up in Babylon, Babylon had a way that it wanted those people to relate to the culture. And the Babylonians were really, really smart about this. They were really intelligent about the way that they integrated people whom they had conquered. Up till now, when a conquering army had dominated another nation and took them into captivity, what tended to happen is that they would just make them slaves, right? Give them menial jobs, rule them by brute force. Think of what the Egyptians did to the Hebrews, right? That's what they did. They took them in, made them make bricks. If they whined and complained, they just came down on them hard, like a ton of bricks. That wasn't the Babylonians. The Babylonians took the brightest and best and then gave them jobs according to their status, right? Gave them jobs in the Babylonian economy and more or less let them fully integrate into the Babylonian system. Think of Daniel and his friends, right? They, they didn't make bricks. They had good civil service jobs. They were making good money. They were people of relative privilege. Why did the Babylonians do that? Well, as any good employer knows, you like to have good employees. So if you bring these good people into the Babylonian economy, the Babylonian economy benefits from that. So the Babylonians are smart, right? They're going to make money and make Babylon strong with these people. But more to the point, the Babylonians wanted those people to assimilate. That was the cultural strategy of Babylon, assimilation. You didn't have to force them to give up their Jewish identity. You let them in. Show them the prosperity of Babylon, show them all the fun Babylonian things, and of their own volition, they would give up their identity as children of God. Assimilation. You see that strategy in the Daniel stories, specifically. Remember when Daniel first came to Babylon, what was the first thing they did? They gave him a new name. Belteshazzar. Remember that? That was what the Babylonians wanted to call him. You know what Belteshazzar means? My God is Bel, right? My God is Bel was one of the Babylonian deities. So in that name, they were trying to get Daniel to put his allegiance, associate himself with the Babylonian gods instead of his Lord. Assimilation. Daniel, you're a smart guy. You're talented. Come work for us. Oh, we'd love to have you. Daniel, you're such a good guy. But you know what? Your name, it's hard for us to say. Do you mind if we call you Belteshazzar? And oh, there's a great, two weeks from now, it's Marduk Day. We're going to have a big party. Everyone's going to be there. We'd love you to come, Daniel. You're a great guy. We're going to have a pig roast. I'll introduce you to my sister. It'll be great. All right? Assimilation. Assimilation. That was one of the cultural options being pushed on the exile. The other cultural option was exactly the opposite. It was the one we talked about already, and we'll call that sectarianism. 
sort of a fearful standoffishness. That was the option pushed by Hananiah and the other prophets. Don't associate with Babylon because in two years the Lord is going to come and he's going to destroy their power and you'll be lifted up out of there. Don't have anything to do with those idolaters. The Lord will destroy their power and he will take you out of that system and you will be saved. So assimilation on one hand and sectarianism on the other. Yeah, those are the two options that have been given to him so far. Now as an aside, as we try to associate with all culture today, are those two options still offered to us today? Absolutely. Assimilation is live and well. It's happening all the time where the, the sort of the cultural products of the West, Western materialism, causes Christians to lose their identity and become Christians in name only, essentially chasing success and prosperity. Assimilation happens all the time. What about sectarianism? Is there any of that? Is there any message today, I don't associate with the culture because very soon there's going to be a judgment and we're going to be lifted out of this place? That too is a message that we hear. In between those two extremes approaches comes the word of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah offers something very different. Let's read it again. Listen to what Jeremiah would have us do. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city because if they prosper, you'll prosper too. Pray for the city. This is not sectarianism. That's explicitly rejected when Jeremiah says, don't listen to the other's prophets. Those are their prophesying lies. Engage the city. Plant a garden. Make friends. Be a good citizen. Sectarianism explicitly rejected. It's also not assimilation. Because even though the prophet says, get involved and make friends and, and become part of neighborhood associations, they never do that as Babylonians. Where are their eyes set? Are their eyes set on the goals of Babylon or are their eyes set on another city? Even as they work and engage in Babylon, Jeremiah calls them to have their eyes on the promises of God and the city of God, Jerusalem. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you and bring you back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not do you harm, plans to give you a hope and a future, plans to bring you back to Jerusalem. Get involved here, but your hopes aren't here. Your hopes are in Jerusalem. They were engaged in Babylon, but they were citizens of Jerusalem and they were sheltering in the promises of God. So neither assimilation nor sectarianism. Can we just pause here for a moment and notice the resonances, the echoes, in the command that Jeremiah gives to the exiles. When you heard Jeremiah tell the exiles what to do, I wonder if any of you heard echoes of another biblical passage. Can you think of another biblical passage where the Lord tells people, be fruitful and multiply and make gardens? Genesis 2, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. The promise that, or the command that Jeremiah is giving to these people is resonant with the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. Jeremiah 
God is telling the people in exile to live the life in Babylon as if they were in paradise. This is not some sort of minor engagement. This is wholehearted engagement. This is not civility. This is not simple tolerance. Stand in the middle of the city and show those people what paradise looks like. Stand in the middle of the city and the way you treat each other and the way you live, show them what shalom looks like so even the Babylonians will look at you and will be able to see who the true Lord of the universe is. You know who understood this really well? Our forebears in this city. Our forebears in this city knew how to follow Jeremiah 29. They knew how to be the people of God, but engage this city. And if you look around Grand Rapids, there are institutions and ministries all over the city about people who had their eyes focused on the new Jerusalem, but engaged this city. A lot of those institutions were started by people of the grave years ago. Chelema House, Pine Rest, Wedgwood, Pregnancy Resource Center, Degage, ICCF, we weren't the only ones, Lutheran social services, Catholic social services. The city is full of institutions, people who had their eyes on the promises of God in the New Jerusalem, but engaged Babylon. If you are engaged in the city like that, how do you keep from slipping into assimilation, right? Because that's the danger. When you're so fully engaged, how do you keep engagement from becoming assimilation? How, we here too, we can learn from the exiles. And what the exiles did to keep themselves from being assimilated is they practiced habits of hope. Rituals and habits of hope. Critically important. Think of Daniel again. Daniel 6. Remember that story where King Darius gives the command and says, when, they, when the, the bells play and the harp sounds, when they're playing the national anthem, Everybody in the kingdom must bow down towards me and my might. They must bow down to Babylonian might and give homage to the power of Babylon, making himself into a god. And you remember what Daniel did. He refused to bow. And what did he do instead? As he had always done, he went to his room, opened his window towards Jerusalem, and prayed to his Lord. He kept his eyes on Jerusalem and its promises, and that allowed him to live in the city and engage the city without being assimilated and giving up his identity. Here's another thing the exiles did, which is a little less easy to see. They held on to scripture. Think about that. During the exile, how is it that all those old stories weren't lost over those 70 years? They weren't lost because the people held on to them. They told them to their children. They told them to each other. They remembered the stories of Genesis. They remembered the story of, of Exodus. They remembered the laws of Leviticus. They kept singing the Psalms. They kept saying the words of the prophets, right? Scripture was, was held on even more tightly in those places and practiced. A lot of people think that synagogue worship started during the exile. They couldn't go to the temple anymore, so what did they do? They would gather on the Sabbath in the synagogue and remember the word and focus on the word. It was a habit, a habit of hope that kept them from being assimilated. So much of the talk surrounding the future of the church is pretty negative these days, right? Every statistic, everything Barna puts out there, good for Barna, Barna's wonderful, but all the statistics, right, are depressing, and all the things, oh, what are we going to do? 
What's the tone of Jeremiah 29, though? It's so positive. It's so hopeful. And their situation is much worse than ours. The exile in Babylon is infinitely worse than what we're going through. And yet, because their eyes were focused on the New Jerusalem, because they knew the plans that God had for them and centered themselves on them, they were able to be positive even in that terrible place. Stefan Pass is a professor and a pastor in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. He teaches at the Free University. He's planted a church there. And if you know anything about Amsterdam, Amsterdam is one of the most secular places in the Western Hemisphere, right? Uh, Amsterdam is so completely secular. Stefan Paas says um, that if you try to engage atheists in Amsterdam, it's, it's, it's totally useless if you try to engage them. Like, so in, in the United States, a lot of atheists are ex-Christians. So if you start talking to them about faith, you'll at least get a fight out of them, right? They'll come back at you. In Amsterdam, they're so, so thoroughly secular that if you try to engage them, they just like shrug their shoulders and wash away. They just, I, we don't even, these are not, we're not interested in these things. So Stefan, when he came into Amsterdam, he felt like an exile there, doubly so because he was from the Dutch Bible Belt. Now, you, you probably didn't know that. There is such a thing as the Dutch Bible Belt. There are places like Hudsonville in the Netherlands. I'm not, it's true. And, and so where he was from, everybody was a Christian, right? And, 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 and it was great. And then he came to Amsterdam and it was so totally different. And he felt like, oh, the Lord has abandoned me. The Lord is not in, that place, in this place. How am I going to do this? But then his Reformed theology started to kick in and he realized, no, God is sovereign everywhere. And as he actually paid attention, he realized that his neighbors, even though they were thoroughly secular, they were haunted by the presence of God. They could not escape the restlessness. They could not escape their spiritual side. That God was at work in Amsterdam, even though nobody in Amsterdam was acknowledging this. And so he, would, he, he started to do Jeremiah 29. He got engaged. He got engaged in neighborhood stuff. He associated with people, played sports, whatever. All the ways you engage in civic life, he did these things, made friends along the way. And as he talked to these people, he'd make friends with them. And they would tell him, his sorrow, their sorrows and their needs, and he would simply say to them, oh, I'm sorry, can I pray for you? I'm a Christian, would it be all right if I prayed for you? And almost every single time they said yes, and they didn't just say yes, they said yes with gratitude. And then he would come back and say, how are you doing? Is that everything okay? I'm gonna keep praying for you. He opened up a spiritual conversation in the midst of that dry, desert, secular place. If he tried to come to those people and say, Jesus is Lord, repent. Pow. But with prayer for the city and engagement, something blossoms. The future is not as negative as the rhetoric that you sometimes hear. Because this world belongs to God and Jesus is Lord of this world. And we know the plans he has for us. Plans to give us hope. Plans to give us a future. Plans to change everything. Plans to bring justice. Plans to bring righteousness. Plans to make everything new. Thanks be to God. Amen. Lord God, we thank you that in this place we can turn our eyes towards the new Jerusalem and see you there on the throne. Feel the outpouring of your spirit and know again that you are Lord. 
Father, you know how much we need that. We need that to face our personal stuff, which is sometimes overwhelming. And we need that to face the things in the world, these problems that seem too big for us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Send us into the world to wrestle, fight, and pray, and to speak your name wherever we go. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.